Here we are in the book of Romans again, lesson 6, and we're in chapter 2, verse 16 and forward. And the focus of the letter is about to change. He's been speaking to the Gentile contingent of this synagogue. And may I say synagogue, because we can assume that this is being written to a messianic synagogue. And I know that our Christian brothers would stop me here and say, wait, this is a church. But as we all know, church is just a translation of the word ecclesia, which means assembly. At this time, there were assemblies, but there were no churches. The word had never been used. The word comes from the Old English, actually. However, the word synagogue was used to describe assemblies. And some would say, Stan, but doesn't the word say that they started home churches? Well, yes, they did, in fact, start these new assemblies in the home, but that's where synagogues started for centuries, for a long time. So really, that means nothing. So understand that at this time, this is more than likely a messianic synagogue in Rome, made up of about 80% Gentiles, who he has been speaking to, and about 20% Jews, who he is about to speak to, very much like the makeup of our congregation here and other messianic congregations of today. So now in verse 16 and forward, he begins to turn the focus from these Gentile believers to the Jewish believers. Now we can assume that these Jewish believers in Rome were more than likely Pharisees. And I say that because we can see that from the things he says. And we can tell they were religious. He's going to confront these Jewish believers with hypocrisy, which tells us they were religious Jews. And not just since accepting Messiah, but many of them were religious Pharisees who had accepted Yeshua as Messiah. You know, there were other sects of religious Jews at the time, like the Essenes, but here in Rome, you wouldn't find any Essenes. Indeed, they they even fled from Jerusalem. They found it offensive, so they went and lived in the desert. So Rome would be far too wicked for them. There would be no Sadducees, they were religious, but there would be no Sadducees, they were pretty much the priests and they had their duties in Jerusalem. But the group that most reached outside the borders of Israel were the Pharisees. And remember again, this letter is not Xeroxed and each one is sitting at home in in his comfort of his living room reading this Xerox letter. The letter is being read to the full assembly of the synagogue in Rome. And up until now, the Jewish believers have been sitting back in their chairs, smiling, watching the Gentiles squirm. But now their chairs are about to get a mite uncomfortable as well. So let's begin. We'll go back up a little bit to verse 16. And it says, This will take place on the day God will judge men's secrets through Yeshua the Messiah, as my gospel declares. Now here's the big clue as to what he is about to address with these folks, and we can, we can call it the topic line for what follows. And it is the secrets of men. And we spoke a little bit about this last week, how men tend to compartmentalize their lives. They have one thing that they portray in public, and then at home, it's, sometimes it's quite another thing. They may be quite religious outside and quite different in their homes. Well, that's hypocrisy. And that's what Paul will be taking up with these believers. Verse 17 says, Now, if you call yourself a Jew 
And if you rely on the law and brag about your relationship to God, if you know his will and approve of what is superior because you are instructed by the law. Now I want you to notice that I underlined Jew here because I want to start by saying at this time, this term is used to describe the entire house of Israel. And if you go to a two-house congregation, they may... And they, some, now they're starting to call themselves other things. They start to call themselves Hebrew Roots Congregations or Messianic Israel. They have a lot of new terms they use to describe themselves. They're changing because the, word, the term two-house was so far out, so unprovable, they no longer want to associate themselves with that name any longer. But they believe the same thing. And make no mistake about it, they believe the same thing. And they teach that Jewish people, those who can prove a Jewish lineage, are Judah. And then there's Israel. Israel are those who lost their identity and are coming to faith in Messiah. And they can't prove they're descended from Israel, but they're sure that they are descended from Israel, from the lost tribes, because of this feeling they have. Well, I found that the feeling they have is misplaced envy or too much pizza or something. The point being, if you hear people using terms like Judah and Israel, they're throwing those terms about, you're more than likely in a two-house congregation, no matter what they call themselves. Point I want to make here, as far as this study is concerned, though, is that Jew here, as it's used in the Bible, is not a reference to Judah, but it's a reference to all Israel. Everyone descended from the 12 tribes. Okay? Notice that I underline the phrase, if you rely on the law. And I want to look at the Young's literal for a moment because it gives us a better flavor of what's being said. It says this, Lo, thou art named a Jew and dost rest upon the law and dost boast in God. So Paul is saying, if you put your confidence in Torah observance, and he says this because the Pharisees, really they have their security bound up in the knowledge of Torah. They have their I feel good about myself tied up in their knowledge of Torah and the fact that God gave them the Torah. And the point being, you don't want to rest or have your confidence in anything other than Yeshua. While your boast in God is good, no doubt, it had better not be in His Torah or your observance of His Torah. It had better be in Messiah Yeshua. And so then it goes on to say, if you are convinced that you are a guide for the blind and a light for those who are in dark, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of infants, because you have in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. So they think of themselves highly, right? Well, the fact is, all of those things he just mentioned are really good things. And as followers of Yeshua, we should have all of those things. But the point is, if any of those things become your boast, then you're in trouble. You should study to do, not to just know. If you study to know, if that's the purpose of your study, you're heading in for problems because knowledge in and of itself is prideful, becomes prideful. Now the rub, and now they're going to start squirming in their chairs as he says this in verse 21. You then who teach others... Do you not teach yourself? 
He's saying you boast about these things. You teach these things. Why don't you teach yourself? They teach, in other words, but they don't walk. They know, but they don't do. And the very first thing you better understand before you begin to study Torah is that you study to do. If you study and you do, you're going to be a light to those in darkness and the rest of those things that we just spoke of as well. With everything you do, you'll be a teacher. If you study and teach Torah but do not do, you'll not only be a hypocrite, but you will actually blaspheme the name of God, which is a point Paul is going to make as we move forward. Listen to what Shammai says. Make your Torah a fixed practice. Say little and do much. You see, this is basic Torah 101. Listen to what Leviticus 23 and verse 3 says. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them. Notice that. And do them. It's one thing to know the statutes and it's quite another to do the statutes. If you know and do not do, you're guilty of knowingly transgressing the master's precepts. Listen to what the rabbi said about this verse. It's actually 26.3, not 23.3. It's actually 26.3. But listen to what the rabbi said. And keep my commandments and do them. Rabbi Hayat taught, this refers to one who learns with the intention of practicing and not one who learns with the intention of not practicing. He who learns with no intention of practicing had been better unborn. Had been better if he had been unborn. Serious stuff. Because you go from one who sins without intent to one who sins knowingly. And that's a, there's a huge difference in that. He goes on to say this. You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is said, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Now, he quotes the book of Isaiah here when he says, as it is written. And it's written in Isaiah 52, beginning with verse 5. It says, now therefore, what have I here, saith the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing? That they rule over them with a howl, saith the Lord, and my name continually every day is blasphemed? You see, he quotes this passage in Isaiah where God asks a rhetorical question. He says, therefore, what have I here, saith the Lord, that my people are taken away for nothing? And the answer, of course, is no, because God would never allow his people to be taken away for nothing. But if we go to the book of Ezekiel, which has very much the same quote, we find out why they were carried away. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 17 says, the Son of Man... When the people of Israel were living in their own land, they defiled it by their conduct and their actions. Their conduct was like a woman's monthly uncleanness in my sight. So I poured out my wrath on them because they had shed blood in the land and because they had defiled it with their idols. I dispersed them among the nations 
and they were scattered through the countries. I judged them according to their conduct and their actions. And wherever they were among the nations, they profaned my holy name. For it was said of them, these are the Lord's people, and yet they had to leave his land. I, cons- I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel profaned among the nations where they were, where they had gone. You see, when you do good, when you know to do good, and you boast about God, and you, you, your knowledge of Him and His ways, and then you don't do them, you, you, Hilul Hashem. In other words, profane the name of God. And there's a great price to be paid for the violation of the third commandment, which this is. Do not misuse the name of God. Now listen, he goes on. For circumcision has value if you observe the law. But if you break the law, you have become as though you had not been circumcised. Now, the key word here is the very first word in this verse, for. And it means we have to go back because he's establishing the point that he just stated And this thing that he just stated is if you brag about the Torah and do not keep the Torah, you dishonor God. And then God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles on your account. So second, you have to understand what does he mean by circumcision? Well, circumcision by the first century and since then has become a sign of being part of the Jewish people. It's an ethnic identifier of the Jewish people. And by that I mean all the tribes of Israel. And so when I say circumcision, I'm speaking of all the descendants of Jacob. But understand, that's not what he was supposed to be. It's what it's become. What it was supposed to be What it began was a sign of the covenant with Abraham. And it had nothing to do with being a Jewish identifier. Let's look at this briefly. You know, we can find that in chapter 12 of Genesis, God asked Abraham to leave his country. And then it's not until chapter 17 that God gives Abraham the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. And I want to read with Genesis chapter 17, verse 1 through 3. Listen to this now. And when Abraham was 90 years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said unto him, I am God Almighty. Walk habitually before me and be thou perfect. And I will make my covenant with me and thee, and I will multiply thee exceedingly. And Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, and if we read on farther, he'll tell him to circumcise his household. You see, Abraham received the sign of the covenant because he believed God, because he would habitually walk before God. In other words, obey me, because that is the only way that you can walk with God, is if you obey him. And then it says, be thou perfect. And the Hebrew word there is tamim. Listen to what it means. Integrity, truth, and without blemish. Obey him with integrity and truth, as the text we just read says, perfect. You see, that's the expectation of God and the manifestation in Abraham's life of this covenant. 
Abraham walked before God with integrity. In other words, he was a man who was honest and fair. This is a promise from God and a promise from Abraham to live by the truths of God without blemish. In other words, there's no hypocrisy in him. And so we kind of have two different definitions of circumcision. And Paul is going to combine these. He's going to speak to these definitions. He's going to use this with the Jewish identifier as well. And the reason is simple. He's speaking to the Jewish people in the synagogue. And he says, for circumcision has value if you observe the law. You see, it has value if you walk with God in truth and integrity and honesty and fairness. Then it has value because God sees you in relationship with him. As he did Abraham. And I say relationship because it says God talked with Abraham. It says he spoke to Abraham. But let me say, if you have no integrity... If you're not honest, and if you break the law, you have become as one who is not circumcised. God no longer sees you in covenant with him. You might as well have saved the pain of yourself of cutting your foreskin. You might as well have saved yourself the pain. Because you're wearing the circumcision, no account. You're not in, you're not in covenant with him. In its meaning of the day, he's saying circumcision has value. So he's saying being a part of the covenant people of Israel, being Jewish has value if you observe the law. In other words, being in covenant with God has value if you keep the terms of the covenant. By keeping the terms of the agreement for all to see, you're going to demonstrate the qualities of the master and thereby kadush Hashem. You're going to bring honor to his name. But if you do not live according to the terms of the covenant, you're no longer part of the covenant. And you, by your own actions, have removed yourself. Well, then if you continue to claim to be a part of the covenant, then people will look at your actions and think that these things are fine according to the God of Israel. These things are acceptable to the God of Israel. And then you will chilul Hashem. So in God's sight, You're part of the covenant if you keep the terms. And if not, your outward sign of that covenant is of no value. You might as well save the pain of circumcision. Verse 26 says, If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as though they are circumcised? And so next... We should find out who he's talking about here when he says those who are not circumcised and keep the law's requirements. Who is he talking about? Well, the only one who keep God's requirements and are not circumcised are the Gentiles. That these Jewish believers he's addressing are sitting next to. He's speaking of the Gentiles who have come to faith in Messiah and are keeping the Torah's requirements. When the Lord looks at them, he will regard them as though they were in relationship, just as Abraham. Remember, Abraham was circumcised long after he left Ur. And it had become apparent by then that he walked with God. He was a man of integrity and truth. Remember, he's called in chapter 12. 
Then in chapter 14, he rescues Lot. And when he does, he turns down the wealth that was offered him. Listen to what it said in in chapter 14. This is a man of integrity. In verse 22, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the creator of heaven and earth. I have taken an oath that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread of the thong of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abraham rich. Long after chapter 15, where God makes an unconditional covenant with Abraham and promises to bless him with a son and descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and give him the land of Israel for his, will be for his descendants. Long after that, not until chapter 17 does he give him the sign of the covenant. Circumcision. He had been walking with God in the ways of God and circumcision was the sign of that covenant and a reminder to Abraham because of where the sign was on his reproductive organ, it was to remind Abraham that he was to pass that walk and that integrity onto his children. Well, if you forget the walking and the integrity, then the sign is irrelevant because you've broken the covenant. You've broken the agreement. Now listen to what he says in verse 27. The one who is not circumcised physically, yet obeys the law, will condemn you who, even though you have the written code in circumcision, are a lawbreaker. Having the sign and not the action serves to judge you. And it is those who have walked, whoever they are, that will be those who have walked with God, that will be the measure by which you're judged. Now that we went through all of that, I wanted to ask you something else this morning. What is the sign of the new covenant? Every covenant has a sign. If you go through the Bible, you're going to find every covenant has a sign. Right? What's the sign of the new covenant? Well, some will say it's the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's the sign of the new covenant. Some will say that it's baptism with water and they point to the Great Commission as proof. But let me ask you something. Where in Scripture does it say that any of those things are the sign of any covenant? It doesn't. When God gives a sign, He tells you this is the sign. I don't read that of any of those things. So what is the sign? Is there a sign of the new covenant? Well, God did give a sign. What was it? He did say, I'm going to give you a sign. Isaiah 7, verse 14, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. You see, the sign of the new covenant is Yeshua. And not just that, but that you will call him Emmanuel. What does that mean? God with us. Now, I know some of you are sitting back there saying, oh, you're crazy. But before you do, <laughs> have you ever known anyone who was part of the new covenant that didn't know Yeshua? That didn't confess Yeshua? Anybody? No, I thought not. 
So if Yeshua is the sign, then what are the expectations of God and the manifestations in the lives of those who are part of the new covenant? You know, Abraham's covenant was to walk with God and be perfect. Well, what are the manifestations of the new? Well, let's read them. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was a husband to them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my Torah in their inward parts and write it on their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor or every man his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. So what is the manifestation? Well, they'll have the Torah written on their hearts and they will be God's people. In other words, they're going to be like Abraham. They're going to walk with God and be perfect. They will know God. Did Abraham speak with God? And know his character? Well, yes, he did. Read Genesis chapter 18. He walks with him, he talks with him, and he knows him well enough to say, will, not, will the judge of the earth not do what is right? Will a judge of the earth really judge the righteous and the wicked alike? Far be it from you to do such a thing. Far be it from you. I think that's knowing God. I think that's knowing his character. When you can call him on his character. So let me ask you. Was Abraham a member of the new covenant? Well, yes, he was. Was the Torah on his heart? Did he know God? Did he have the sign of a covenant, Yeshua? Well, let's just read John chapter 8, verse 54. And Yeshua replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. Was Abraham part of the new covenant? Well, yes, he was. Because he had the sign and he kept the expectation. In other words, the manifestations of the covenant were apparent in his life. Let me tell you this. If you compare the definition of the new covenant with a number of patriarchs and others in the Tanakh, you're going to find they were members of the new covenant as well. The only thing new about the new covenant is you. In the house of Israel, in the house of Judah. It's only new to you, but it was certainly not new to Abraham, nor was it new to Moses, nor was it new to Noah. They all were part of the new covenant. And this should not be a surprise to you, because all of the signs of these covenants are shadows of Yeshua. The sign given to Noah, the bow in the sky. That's Yeshua. 
One day, the earth is going to deserve to be destroyed as it was in the days of Noah. And when God gets ready to do it, he's going to look in the sky and he's going to see Yeshua coming on the clouds of heaven. He's the bow. And he will not destroy the earth. Circumcision. Oh, that's Yeshua as well. He's the one who circumcises your heart. And he does it when he takes up residence there and keeps you walking in the spirit and not in the flesh. How about Israel and the sign of the Sabbath? The Sinai covenant. That's Yeshua as well. He's Lord of the Sabbath. All of these things are signs of Yeshua. Well, the sign of the new covenant is Yeshua as well. And more specifically, it is those who realize that he was and is God with us. Circumcision is the outward sign of the covenant between Abraham and God. It's the outward sign that those of his house will keep the requirements of God. But if you bear the outward sign of the covenant and don't keep the requirements, then it's as if you were not circumcised at all. You're not one of the people of God because you declare it outwardly with your mouth. You're one of the people of God because there's been a heart change and you declare it with the way you live. Well, if that's the case, let me ask you this. What about the new covenant? If you walk around saying, I know Jesus, and yet you don't have the Torah on your heart and you don't really know him, you don't know his character, you don't spend any time speaking with him, well, are you going to be judged as as if you didn't have the sign? Well, yes, you will. You're going to stand before Yeshua once a day and he's going to say, depart from me, I didn't know you. Because you didn't take the time to know him. So he goes on. A man is not a Jew if he's only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No, a man is a Jew if he's one inwardly and circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Such a man's praise is not from men, but from God. Now when he says, Jew, remember, this portion of the letter, he's addressing the Jewish contingent of the congregation in Rome. These men who feel that circumcision is also part of a a national identity. And so he says, a Jew, because he's relating to them personally, they feel that being Jewish, they're in a covenant relationship with God. Remember the The letter to the Galatians, there were those who thought you had to become Jewish. You had to be circumcised and become Jewish to be part of the people of God. And that's the kind of thought that he's addressing here. And what he's saying is that being Jewish is not going to avail much. Being born into Judaism is not going to save you unless you come to know the Messiah Yeshua and walk with God. No people group can save you. You can't be a part of a thing that's going to save you. And I want you to understand this. If Paul were standing here among us today, he would be saying, confessing that you are a Christian is not going to avail much either. There's no people group that can save you. You're saved and you'll be judged by your own actions. 
He's saying, well, you think that being a Jew will save you? Well, you think that it's, thinking that is okay, but understand that being a Jew is one who bears the sign of the covenant and lives his life as one who bears the responsibilities of the covenant. He walks with God perfectly and he knows the Messiah, Yeshua. A Jew, he's saying, is one who lives life perfectly because in his heart he knows God and his Messiah acknowledges God and his Messiah and lives life in gratitude and servitude. That's a Jew. And he will have a share in the world to come. But I can tell you this, if he were here today, he would just as easily and could just as easily say, a Christian is not one who says, I'm a Christian. My mother was a Baptist. My father was a deacon in the Baptist church. And I'm a deacon in the Baptist church. Or the Lutheran church. Or whatever church. Because a Christian who is one who bears witness. That Yeshua is the Messiah. Not just with his mouth. But he declares that Yeshua is the Messiah and the Son of God. He has that sign. He declares it with his mouth. And he lives by the Torah that's on his heart. And he knows Yeshua personally. Paul in chapter 2 is saying to the Jewish contingent in Rome, there's no advantage to being Jewish as far as the wrath of God is concerned. Being Jewish does not guarantee you a thing. The only thing that has merit with God is how you live your life. And I am quick to make the same point of a born-again Christian. It's how you live your life. You're going to have to stand before God one day. We've already covered that. So in chapter 2, after making the point that there's no advantage of being Jew and anticipating the Jewish response, which would be to reject that premise, he says this, what advantage then is there being a Jew? What value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they have been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and every man a liar. So what does he mean here? What advantage is there in being a Jew? Much in every way. Well, we'll find out next week.